Would you take your Bible with me this morning and turn to John chapter 6? John chapter 6, we're going to wrap up our time in John 6. Kids, kindergarten through, uh, or excuse me, kids, uh, up to a kindergarten, three and four-year-olds, you can head back. Miss Brianna's back there, um, and she'll take you to your classroom this morning um, and, uh, and have a lesson there for you this morning. John chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 60 through 71. As you turn there in your Bible, I want to invite you back this evening for our our second Sunday evening service of the fall. Um, This evening, we're going to highlight a handful of of local area ministries, uh, places where members of Buffalo City Church are pouring their time and energy into serving our community. Um, And so we're going to highlight those in our time together this evening, as well as sing. If you come beforehand, that's at six. And if you come beforehand at five, we'll have a meal for you downstairs. Um, We'll make it easy on you to make it back here. You don't have to prepare dinner. Dinner will already be prepared for you. So come back at five uh, and then at six for our our Sunday evening service this evening. John chapter six, beginning in verse 60. We'll read through the end of the chapter, which is verse 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to him, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. In, uh, in combat sports, uh, when, you, uh, when you're bested, when your opponent has bested you, um, like you're in a crazy hold, they've got you around the, the, the head, um, and you've been beaten, what you say that you do is you tap out, because you literally tap the ground uh, to indicate that you're surrendering in a, in a combat sport, or you just pass out, which is probably far more detrimental to your health. But if you've been beaten and you see no way out of a certain situation in a combat sport, what you do is you tap out. You tap out. There's no way forward. It's over for you. And so you, you tap out. You, you remember as we've explored John chapter 6, the last couple, three weeks that we've been in John chapter 6, we've seen Jesus preaching this sermon. And this sermon is called the Bread of Life Discourse. And Jesus uh, says several times throughout the, this sermon, I am the bread of life. Many people who have been following Jesus here, when he gets to the end of this teaching, decide to tap out. 
they decide that they're not going forward. They decide that there's no way forward uh, with what they've just heard. What Jesus has just said indicates to them somewhere in their brains, there's, there's no way we can continue to follow him. And Jesus has just talked about working for bread that doesn't perish and the reality that he is the bread of life and the reality that, uh, that men and women need to come to him by faith and eat his flesh and drink his blood. And after hearing these things, they just can't go forward. It's over for them. They can't continue following. So what they do is they tap out. They surrender. It's over. We're moving on. And we see that clearly in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The truth of this, though, the truth of what happens here is that, is that there is another option for them. Although they didn't see a way forward, there was a way forward. And those who have the eyes of faith, as represented by Simon Peter here in, in, in this text, as represented by Simon Peter, see the way forward. The option that people who stop following Jesus here in verse 66 don't see, Peter confesses it. There is a way forward. The other option is that there is no other option but to continue following Jesus. The other option that Peter sees here and confesses is that there is no other option but to continue following Jesus, to press on. Because Jesus is the exclusive way to the Father. And if that's not clear to you so far of what we've seen in John's Gospel, and by the time we get to chapter uh, 14, we're going to see it pretty, pretty clearly. There's no way to get to God except through Jesus. And if we look at verse 65 in our text, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So this idea is building. It's building. Only those who the Father gives to the Son come to the Son. And if you go back, verse 44, last week, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And if we go all the way back to verse 37 in John 6, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And now he says it. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now this should trigger a little alarm in your head. Like I said, this is a really important verse in John's Gospel. When we go ahead to chapter 14, it will seem like we'll probably never get there, but we will. Um, John chapter 14, verse 6, and it's, it's right behind me. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But what's missing from up there is the end of that verse. Um, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus exclusively makes this statement about himself. No one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't say, some come to the Father through other ways other than me. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Only those, in our text, only those that the Father grants the Son come to the Son, and no one comes to the Father except through the Son. Only those that the Father grants to the Son come to the Son, and no one comes to the Father except through the Son. You won't come to the Son unless the Father grants it to you. And we can see very clearly that those who tap out in this text are those who the Father has not given to the Son. 
It's a conclusion we're meant to draw. And uh, those who come to the Father are, or come to the Son are those who the Father has given to the Son. And there is no way to the Father except through the Son. Now that's a lot. That's a mouthful and it may seem a little circular to you, but as we go through our time this morning, I hope that becomes more clear. You can't get to the Father through any other path except through the Son. And this is what the people who tap out in verse 66 don't see. So what I want to do in our time this morning is explore those two groupings of people, those who tap out and those who press on. Those who see no way forward and those who see Jesus is the only way forward. And the first ones that we're introduced to are the ones in verse 60 who are going to be the ones who walk away, who tap out. These disciples, the disciples heard it and they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? So first we're introduced to those who tap out. They indicate in verse 60, this is a hard saying. It's a difficult saying. What Jesus has just talked about, what Jesus has just said, related to eating his flesh and drinking his blood, that's a difficult thing to get our heads around. They say, who can listen to it? Who can hear it? Who can internalize it and process it and understand it and move forward and continue to follow Jesus after he said these things? Now, what's interesting, I think, and what should really be interesting to you immediately in verse 60, look at your Bibles. Look at verse 60. When many of his disciples, we see the word disciple. Many of his disciples. So earlier in John chapter 6, ones that were grumbling were the Jews. And before that, it was just the crowd at large. But now, John tells us that the ones who heard it and said this is hard are disciples. It's not that group of Jews who were out to, to get Jesus and who ultimately would, would go after him and, and, and be the, 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 the fire that would be kindled that would crucify Jesus. It's not that group. It's not the massive crowd that was fed and had chased him across the Sea of Galilee to get another meal. It's a new group of people all together. The text says that they were disciples. They had been tracking with Jesus to this point. They had been realizing what Jesus had said and, and followed him. They've been following and they were listening intently to him. But somewhere in the bread of life discourse for this group as well, there's an escalation and difficulty and they just couldn't get past it. From bread, to Jesus being bread, to flesh and blood, to eating flesh and blood. And now they've gotten hung up. Now they've gotten hung up. I think at the beginning of John chapter 6, we meet a crowd that's 5,000 men plus women and children. And throughout the course of that time, the crowd has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller until it's a handful of people who are devoted followers and then ultimately just the 12 are left in verse 67. From large crowd that was fed the previous day to a group of 
more committed individuals who were willing to track Jesus across the Sea of Galilee, who heard His words. They were listening intently. But as He said these things, they became more and more offended or couldn't quite figure out what He meant. And so they peel off until just the twelve are left. The big crowd described at the beginning of John chapter 6 could fill a space like Newman Arena at UJ's campus two or three times over. That group follows Jesus. But at the end of our text last week in verse 59, Jesus is in the synagogue at Capernaum. The synagogue would have been a much smaller room, probably about this size. 5,000 people couldn't fit in this room. Maybe if we were all piled on top of each other, but probably not. And by the end of this passage, Jesus is just left speaking to the twelve. This should indicate something to us. And we'll flesh that out in a minute. Jesus' hard sayings aren't what lead the scaling back. He says these things for the purpose of bringing the numbers down to sorting and sifting out people as it relates to their level of understanding. When you, when you think of Jesus, I, we, have to, we have to think seriously about this. When we think about Jesus, do you think of someone who says hard things so people decide to stop following him? That is exactly what happens here. Jesus knew that what he said about eating his flesh and drinking his blood was offensive, if taken incorrectly. And he even asks that question in verse 61. He says, do you take offense at this? Jesus isn't the weird uncle that you have at the Thanksgiving table who says a bunch of edgy things and stories that makes you feel uncomfortable. What Jesus is doing is speaking truth. Jesus is speaking truth to them, and they're offended. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus' words are always reflecting the speech that is commended to us in Scripture. Jesus' words are always reflective of the speech that the Bible commends to us. When the Bible says, use your tongue and use your speech in this way, Jesus is always the perfect example of it. And so if we think to ourselves, Jesus, why did you have to be that offensive? Like, did you have to really drive these people away? The answer is yeah. Because his speech is reflective of the speech that the Bible commends to us. Not offensive for offensive sake, but offensive for the sake of the truth. James 3.2 says, If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. That, that, the description of that is Jesus. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, there's only one, and that's Jesus. He is the perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Jesus, the perfect man, sinless in every way. Psalm 37.30 says, The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. 
Jesus speaks wisdom because He is wisdom. He is perfectly righteous. The link between righteousness and justice isn't immediately apparent in this verse, but they're the same word. The one who is righteous is the one who is just. And to be righteous is to be just. And so the one who is perfectly righteous or perfectly just speaks righteousness and justice. But to the one who speaks righteousness and justice, that may be offensive. And it is in this text. Or consider Proverbs 10.20. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. Again, Jesus is the one who is righteous. His words, even though in this text are offensive to many, are tip-top. They're like choice silver. Pure. Undefiled. Affecting hearts perfectly. Notice how this proverb ties the tongue to the heart. The tongue of the righteous is of choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. The tongue and the heart are intimately tied. And Jesus confirms this in Matthew 12, 34, when he says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, none of us would say, well, Jesus was speaking from a position, after reading these things, Jesus is speaking from a position of, of being offensive for offensiveness' sake. Rather, Jesus is simply speaking the truth. The heart of Jesus, perfectly righteous, led to him saying the things that he says in John chapter 6. Led to the truth coming out. And it led to men and women walking away from him. Completely righteous, uncorrupted by sin, wisdom himself. Jesus speaks the words in John 6 perfectly intentionally and they have their fullest effect. They have their intended effect. Jesus' words, we're meant to see this here in John 6, were meant to scale back the numbers in the crowd. He knew his sayings were hard. He knew his sayings were hard. He knew his sayings were offensive for those who couldn't understand what his meaning. Those who did stick around were those who had true faith and the ones who believed. Look at what he says in verse 64. He ties the the questioning of the offensive nature of what he's just said to uh, belief. But there are some of you who do not believe. And then in the parenthesis, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Notice the text tells us about Judas Iscariot immediately here. The one who would betray Jesus at the end of his life. Jesus says it more explicitly right at the end of our text in in verses 70 and 71. He says, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas. John just tells us. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Judas is one of the twelve who does not leave Jesus. But his reasons were not because of belief. He did not stick around with Jesus 
for his belief, but because God's purposes needed to be fulfilled in him. And so Judas' actions would lead to Jesus' crucifixion. That necessary event that would bring to completion all that Jesus set forth to accomplish and that Jesus was talking about when we, when we, when we visited the idea of the atonement for the first time in verses 52-59. through 59. So because of Jesus' hard sayings in, in, uh, in John chapter 6, throughout the Bread of Life discourse, the crowd is scaled back. People say, I, I can't go forward with this. And only the twelve then remain. And verse 66 again shows us that they tap out. Jesus addresses them, then the twelve who are left. And he says, do you want to go away as well? Now Jesus knows their answer based on the parenthesis in verse 64. Jesus knew from the beginning who would believe. Jesus knew the answer. But Simon Peter gives us this beautiful statement, this magnificent confession. And it leads us then to the second point. These are the ones who press on. Those who press on. The confession that Peter makes. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed, and we come, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You should be transported immediately back to John 1.1. You have the words of eternal life. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 4, in Him was life. And then in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is who Jesus is. And John tells us right out of the gate, those first 18 verses in John's Gospel, we learn right out of the gate who Jesus is. Now, the disciples, the twelve, are beginning to understand. They're beginning to come to know at a more intimate level, who Jesus is, who this one is, who they're walking with. Who the one who that they're following. The one who said all of these hard things. Who he is. Peter saw Jesus for who he is. And therefore, he makes this declaration of faith. Remember last week when we talked about eating and drinking the flesh and blood of Jesus. That that stands in for the idea of coming to Him to receive all of His benefits by faith. The things that Jesus offers us are received by faith. And it is faith that joins us to Christ. And so when we get here and we see a declaration of faith by Peter, we understand what that looks like. To continue following Jesus, despite maybe not understanding exactly all of His purposes in everything, but then also to recognize that he is Lord. That's the first thing that Peter says. Lord, to whom shall we go? Note, Lord. Peter is declaring that Jesus is more than just a teacher. 
he's declaring that he's more than just the rabbi. He's been called before in the book. We, we find out that he's more than just a, a, a good guy who's traveling the countryside. But this declaration by Peter that comes, this declaration of faith when he says, Lord, indicates that by faith he is submitting himself to Jesus. Lord, to whom shall we go? He is submitting himself to Jesus. This isn't a partial submission. There's nothing about Peter's statement here and Peter's life as we follow him through the Gospels that would indicate that he was only doing this in one area. Or it was just this day. And that Jesus was far from him for the rest of his life. His declaration of faith here is, to whom shall we go, indicates an all of life type of understanding. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. But the second part of this declaration found in verse 69 is where he says, and we have believed. There's that idea of belief. But then, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is again another way of saying that Jesus is the Christ when he says the Holy One of God. Your Bible may even translate it the Messiah. Jesus is the one who came down from heaven to redeem and to deliver God's people. Peter, by faith, makes a bold statement in response to Jesus' question. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Those who see, by faith, those who see who Jesus is, where else do they go? Where else do they go? If Peter thought there were options here, if Peter thought there were options, he would not have called him Lord or Master or Ruler. And if Peter was on the fence about Jesus being from heaven, why would he have declared Jesus to be the Messiah? If, if Jesus is Lord, and if he is from heaven, like he's reiterated over and over and over again in this chapter, and if he is the Messiah, the one who's come to deliver his people, if that is truly who Jesus is, if he is truly who he says he is, then where, where, where else would we go? How could we do anything but come to him by faith? To think that there is another option, like the disciples who left in verse 66, is faithlessness. It's unbelief. To think that you have other options in your life, for every area of your life, is unbelief, is faithlessness. Those who tap out and those who do not believe, they are faithless. Those who press on believe that Jesus is Lord. That he is who he says he is. That he is the bread of life. That he does offer eternal security, eternal belonging, and eternal satisfaction. Unwaveringly so. Those who press on believe that Jesus is the Messiah. 
The only one who can take away the sins of the world. The only one who can deal with the problem that we have. The sin that resides within us. The sin that is embedded in our very nature. The sin that we choose daily. These ones are the faithful ones. Peter's confession shows us very clearly what our response should be. What a faith-filled response is. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. If you're thinking to yourself right now in this moment, Lord, um, I see that you're one option for the way that we should go, then you have not seen Jesus for who he truly is. The prayer that you should pray is that the Holy Spirit would awaken you to a realization that Jesus is the only one to whom you can go in every area of your life for everything that you have and everything that you need. Let's draw a few conclusions based on this text. And then we're going to move to the Lord's table this morning. The first thing that I want you to see this morning as we walk away is that a bigger following isn't the goal. A bigger following isn't the goal. We see that in the way that Jesus speaks. He speaks truth. He's very clear about the things that he is doing in order that men and women who have faith will make confessions and declarations of faith and come to him. But to those who do not have faith, like in verse 64, those Uh, There are some of you who do not believe. Those are the ones who depart. Their faithlessness is the thing that drives them away. A bigger following isn't the goal, therefore. So increasing influence or, or growing in size or numerical value is an assumed goal in our culture. It's an assumed goal in our culture. More Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok followers is what drives many people in our culture. Having voice that resonates far and wide, that makes it into the newspaper, or that, uh, that, that gets uh, or is, is, uh, is present in the local news. It's seen as important. <laughs> Every week, someone launches a new podcast that, I'd, that you can listen to. Books are endlessly being written to get ideas out into the world. Additionally, many churches and church leaders have idolized the idea of church growth. And I want to make it clear that this leads to compromises, especially in the realm of truth. Skirt issues of sin or God's design for human sexuality or matters related to sanctity of life. Friends, we should not compromise truth to make people feel comfortable and at home. We are called to fear God and not fear man. Jesus didn't fear followers tapping out. Earlier this week, if you're in the Bible reading plan and you're caught up, you read 1 Corinthians 1. And in verse, 13, or verse 18, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 1, it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When we tell the truth about the gospel, men and women are offended. It is an offensive thing. 
the truths of Scripture hit the ears of unbelievers, and Paul says here that it sounds of folly. It sounds of foolishness. They speak of it as old-fashioned, a sacrificial system, a sacrifice, a son sent into the world. They make claims of cosmic child abuse. They cite secular criticism, and they double down on relativism. They say, Jesus isn't the exclusive way to the Father. All paths lead to God, or some silliness, nonsense like that. But to those who are being saved, the gospel engages the mind and the heart like nothing else can. Jesus says it here. He says, the words I have spoken are spirit and life. The words I have spoken are spirit and life. When received with ears of faith, the words of Jesus make alive our spiritual sensibilities. You hear what would have been offensive to you. A cross, a blood-stained cross. Capital punishment is our salvation. God chooses to grow a following. He he may choose to grow church attendance. He may choose to grow influence. But friends, this is not an indicator of his favor. It may be, but it's not guaranteed. Was God's favor not upon Jesus Christ? And yet men and women walked away. A bigger crowd should lead us to assess our faithfulness and ask if, are we making compromises in the area of truth? The author tells us, the author of Hebrews tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. If we faithlessly compromise what is true to gain influence, would we be pleasing to God? The answer is no. We can say with utmost certainty, if we compromise what God has said to us in His Word, we would not be pleasing to God. God, through His Word, may cause men and women and boys and girls to come, but He may also use it to sift, paring back numbers to expose those who truly have faith. Friends, our call is to be faithful. Like Peter, who made a bold declaration of faith. Because to whom else shall we go? Who else should we go to? Other than Jesus Christ, the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Exclusively. So that's the first thing I want you to see you here. Or for you to see here. A bigger following isn't the goal. The second thing is, Jesus' words are never idle and always have their intended effect. We can with certainty say that through hard sayings, Jesus exposed the faithless. They turned back. They tapped out. And the question for you is, do you see Jesus' words as foolishness? Do you see Jesus' words throughout Scripture as foolishness? Are you tempted to tap out when you come upon certain things that Jesus says? And you say, of course not. Of course not. I understand. We must be joined to Christ by faith. 
But what about the instances where Jesus' words are hard to hear, like the disciples here in this passage? What about the instances where the things here, we're like, yeah, we can ingest these. These make sense to us. But what about the things in your Bible reading plan when you run up against them, do you think to yourself, eh, maybe. The instances where Jesus' words are hard for us. How we live puts on display if we think Jesus' words are foolish or not. Let me give you some examples. Does your life display a pursuit of money and material despite Jesus' words? You cannot serve God in money. Does your life display or put on display that you serve the idol of family despite Jesus' words? If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father or mother or wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Does your life show the opposite and show neglect for your family relationships despite Jesus' words? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Or, wives, submit yourself to your husbands as to the Lord. Or, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Or, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the fear, or in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Does your life show frequent neglect of the meeting of the saints in congregational worship, despite Jesus' words? And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Are those words hard? Are you prepared to discard those things? I could go on, but you get the idea. Peter's confession indicates to us that he believed the words that Jesus spoke and his confession gave evidence of that belief and he continued to follow Jesus. His life gave evidence of it. When you ignore and live contrary to Jesus' words, you have acted in disobedience. And those things have their intended effect. But for those who hear Jesus' words and respond, the intended effect of those words on us is faith. By following Him and His words in all of life. That brings us then to the Lord's table this morning. We get to live our belief right now. This isn't for later. This isn't for later at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. This isn't for tomorrow when you get to work. This is for right now. We get the opportunity to come to the Lord's table and to live by faith, by approaching the table, receiving the elements, understanding Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death is the means by which we are justified. It is through his perfect life and sacrificial death that our sin is atoned for. And we are promised an eternity of abundant life. That's what the Lord's table is. Eating the bread representative of Christ's flesh. Drinking the juice representative of Christ's blood. Symbolizing the reality that you and I together are joined by faith to Christ. 
faithfully living in all that God has commanded us to do in Scripture. So I want to invite you to come up to receive the elements in a moment. But let me read from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this morning we're going to make that declaration by faith. We're going to declare together with Peter, to whom else shall we go? When you walk down the aisle this morning to grab these elements at this table, you are saying by faith, to whom else shall we go? To whom else shall we go? The broken body, the shed blood of Jesus, the atonement of our sins, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. To whom else shall we go? There is nowhere else to go. If you cannot in your heart make the statement, to whom else shall I go? Then don't approach the table this morning. Don't come to the table this morning. If you think that there's another way, other than Jesus Christ, to get to the Father, don't approach the table. No one's watching you, it'll be fine. Consider the words of Jesus here in John chapter 6. This event that we're about to participate in is for those who have been joined to Christ by faith. So this morning, I would invite you to come, pick up the elements when you're prepared in your hearts to do so. If you have kids in here, by all means, invite them to participate if they've made a credible profession of faith. But if not, just allow them to... uh, Allow them to observe and use it as an opportunity, as always, to share the good news of Jesus Christ, what he's done for them, and what he's done for us. Let me pray. The worship team will come up. Worship team, if you grab your elements on the way up, that would be lovely. And then when I'm finished, we'll sing and approach the table um, when you're ready in your heart to do so. God, we thank you this morning for your words that are given to us. God, we thank you for the truth that is put on display in Scripture. God, we praise you this morning that we as your people can come before you in faith and make a public declaration like the Lord's Supper that we have been joined to you. God, would we see this morning very clearly who Jesus Christ is. God, and would in our hearts make the same declaration that Peter makes in this text. To who else shall we go? He, Jesus, has the words of eternal life. God, may we approach him this morning. God, and may we approach the table ready to make a similar statement. God, we thank you for all that you are in Jesus Christ. And we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.